This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, August 7th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. A proposed change to the tax treatment of capital gains would mean no longer providing the federal government with windfall revenues driven by inflation. Maddie Dupler is a senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union and a board member at the new Center for a Free Economy. We spoke yesterday. How long has this proposed change with respect to capital gains been kicked around? This policy change has certainly been in discussion uh, for Republicans for decades. Now, the last time we saw it seriously considered by an administration uh, was in 1992 under the the first Bush administration when a legal memo was produced by the Department of Justice arguing that this would be outside the scope of Treasury to undertake uh, this definitional change. Now, since then, and even at that time, there was discussion as to whether or not that opinion uh, was firmly rooted in both both legal reasoning and with a full understanding of the scope um, of uh, Treasury's capabilities. And certainly, as we've seen over the past 30 years, the scope and nature of the way the executive branch works has changed. So there have been a lot of legal scholars that at the time questioned whether or not this was the right approach. And I should say that this wasn't a binding legal decision from the Supreme Court saying that the administration can't undertake this, uh, this kind of action. It was simply an internal legal memo from some lawyers who decided that this would po- possibly be a contentious move. And so Treasury should decline to do so. Um, There has been a lot of discussion ever since then as to whether or not the Bush administration was being too hesitant in not trying uh, to pursue this policy goal. And, you know, we've seen this discussion both as a product of legislative changes, you know, the 1980s and the famous Ronald Reagan tax cuts and tax reform act in 1986. There was significant changes made to index um, parts of the tax code for inflation, just not capital gains. So this is okay. So let's let's get a sense of uh, who pays capital gains taxes and how much do they pay. Well, so a good question is, what are we looking at here? What is a capital gains tax? Now, I will point out, too, that there has been a lot of criticism um, about taxing capital gains as regular income, arguing that it's only the wealthy who pay capital gains, when, in fact, you know, investors and savers are the ones who will be most impacted by this rule change. Uh, but there are a number of other people, too, who really could benefit from a rule change like this. It's people who participate in any kind of asset sale that has gained value over time. So thinking about people who have bought houses in uh, markets that potentially have grown exponentially, especially recently. Uh, Those are the sorts of people, too, who would benefit from this. Now, they likely are not as large a swath of the population as people who are broadly invested in the stock market. Uh, But if you look at what the assessment is, the revenue impact of this policy change, uh, the estimate floating out there is about $100 billion over 10 years which is not a lot of money. That's about $10 billion a year. When you think about the whole federal uh, government spending $4 trillion a year, it doesn't seem like such, big of a de- such a big deal to have $10 billion a year in revenue, uh, a revenue change there. But there's a there's a, uh, when you look at the distributional analysis of this, this would have very little impact on the actual AGI of high-income earners. The impact of this policy change, where it's important, is the cascading effect it has on the economy, both because high-income high earners who are the holders of these assets who then are not paying taxes on phantom gains that don't exist are able then to use to essentially liquidate that capital that has been sitting dormant uh, that has had a uh, a barrier to its its sale and release of that capital. Um, All right. So when you say a phantom gain, mm-hmm. you talk about a nominal gain 
uh, that has already been eaten away by inflation. Exactly right. So essentially, when you look at the a cap, when someone is right now and they are selling an asset and they have a capital gain on that, they're the taxes that they pay are on the nominal value of that cost basis. So when you bought a say it's a stock, when you bought a stock twenty years ago, the purchasing value of that dollar was a lot more than it is today. However. The tax code does not take that into effect. The tax code counts that sale of that asset today as if it was being that sale was being made in the dollars at the time at which you bought that asset. So you can understand then how someone who has had an asset for a certain amount of time, that asset grows in wealth, but it also grows um, uh, by virtue of inflation. So when you tax capital gains without taking into account that growth that is not an accumulation of wealth, but is simply a passage of time, you are taxing a gain that is, in, in effect, phantom. It is not a gain that has happened in terms of real uh, accumulation of wealth. It is a gain just in the nominal uh, accounting of that asset. This is a quote from a, a famous economist. Uh, and he said, by a continuing process of inflation, governments can confiscate secretly and unobserved an important part of the wealth of their citizens. There is no subtler, no surer means of overturning the existing basis of society than to debauch the currency. The process engages all the hidden forces of economic law on the side of destruction and does it in a manner which not one man in a million is able to diagnose. Uh, that's John Maynard Keynes talking about inflation. And um, so it, it's important to note that inflation is this thief that uh, Keynes describes it as, but the incentive effects seem to be, uh, it, it seemed to be very important for individual investors, uh, of which there are more than uh, people might like to think. And uh, what are the incentives effects for fiscal policy, for uh, lawmakers themselves when it comes to understanding that inflation is a cost that fiscal uh, their fiscal policy decisions will have to bear if this change were to be put into effect. I think that that is the most accurate way to characterize uh, this taxation in the code, which is that it's confiscatory. The fact that it, it is wealth that doesn't exist, but is being confiscated anyway by the government, by uh, virtue of the fact that time has passed since the accumulation of an asset. Uh, and so policymakers need to be aware of uh, this kind of this authorized theft uh, by the federal tax code. Um, and, you know, looking forward, uh, it is my hope that after the passage of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act last year, uh, policymakers have expressed some desire to continue to revisit the tax code uh, more frequently than every 30 years, as ha has now been the case. Uh, so there has been a discussion from the House Ways and Means Committee about Tax Reform 2.0 and what that looks like. And something that I think is worth noting here uh, in that 2.0 draft, there is a lot of conversation about savings and how we induce Americans to be better savers. Uh, and some of that means getting rid of this bias against savings in the tax code. Not having capital gains indexed uh, for inflation is one example of where our tax code is very biased against savers. Uh, we, of course, don't have, uh, of course, all savings is somewhat uh, has a bias against it, except for tax exempt savings uh, at the outset. Um, and there's a lot of discussion about how we can do a better job um, allowing that kind of capital accumulation to be treated fairly. Um, and I certainly think this would be an important first step. And, you know, as I mentioned before, 
This is not simply just uh, a question of individual investors and when they sell an asset on the stock market, what that looks like for them in terms of their tax impact. Uh, this affects everyday people. You know, in the tax code right now, there is an exemption for a sale of a house, but it's something that was set in law in 1997, and that hasn't been indexed for inflation. So those values right now, they're about 250 and 500,000 for a single or married couple selling a home. The exemption, the tax exemption for that sale, uh, if those had been indexed for inflation, those would look more like four hundred and eight hundred thousand dollars. So you can tell right away people who are going about their lives, making decisions that families make all across this country every single day are vastly impacted by this kind of uh, policy nuance uh, that is extremely important when it comes to the actual the actual uh, impact um, on people everywhere here in the United States. And it, it's interesting because you would want you would think that uh, people would want to protect uh, investors and people who have uh, their retirement nest eggs uh, tucked away in a uh, brokerage, you would think that you would want to protect them from the impact of both bad fiscal policy and bad monetary policy. But if we find ourselves uh, at approaching retirement and uh, find ourselves in a situation with very high inflation, um, as as of now, the government's stance is well. That's just too bad. If you want to, yeah, if and, you want to cash out, yeah. And I think it's a super interesting question right now about what fiscal and monetary policy looks like in this uh, specific, you know, instance of time. We're we're here. We have a demographic question um, that is pretty interesting for policymakers, both by virtue of the pressure that we're now seeing on um, our entitlement spending programs, but also the fact that millennials characteristically do not invest because they came of financial age during the financial crisis, and so they are afraid of the stock market. So we're not seeing as robust entry um, into these kinds of investment vehicles that were widespread for the generation above us. Now, I raise that because we are now in a period, obviously, of low inflation. That will not always be the case. So that certainly discussions like this about what our policy looks like when it relates to inflation are definitely tempered by uh, just kind of what it, policymakers have been exposed to. Um, and, you know, I raise millennials as kind of the the cohort uh, that are that are experiencing a different financial future right now than the generation above them. But keep in mind that Congress itself is also very young. Uh, and I say that by by that, I mean, they haven't been there for very long. <laughs> About two-thirds, I think, of Congress um, after this next midterm will have been elected since 2010. So that means that their own institutional understanding and their exposure to these uh, issues is 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 narrow in scope. Uh, people who are making these decisions in Congress have only really been contemplating these questions for as long as maybe some of these millennials have been contemplating their financial futures. So I think it raises a good question about having a broader scope of the problem and being able to look into the future to notice that our policy decisions that we make now will be impacted greatly and probably have a cascading effect in the future because the underlying environment is going to change. So we can't legislate and look at our environment now as if it were static. It will not stay the same. And we're beginning to see some of those changes break loose, you know, with uh, the Fed's starting to hike just a little bit, you know, a couple basis points here or there, um, and people are already starting to question what that means. This will not always be the environment. So we need to make sure that we have public policy that best inoculates taxpayers from this confiscation by government. And certainly indexing capital gains uh, is a good step in the in the in that direction. 
you told me before that uh, Mike Pence, when he was in Congress, was a leader on this issue. Of course, he's in the White House now, and that's where the idea is being uh, per- is percolating uh, as we speak. Is he a leader on this now? And is there any impetus in uh, a Congress to, if if the White House chooses not to do, uh, I'd say perhaps in a dubious way, make this change? Is there uh, an impetus in Congress to get this done? As always, the question of what Congress can get done. Uh, that universe narrows and narrows as we get closer to a midterm, it seems. But in Congress, we have a specific problem, which is that we need 60 votes in the Senate to do anything of real importance. Uh, and there certainly are not 60 votes in the Senate. There is legislation in the House. Congressman Nunes has introduced legislation in the House. But I would argue that this is not a move that needs to wait at the beck and call of whether or not Congress can get its act together. This is something the administration can do right away. And it would just be a definitional rule change at Treasury uh, that could be executed in a matter of days. Now, there are a number of advocates in the White House uh, that seemingly would be able to get this done. Larry Kudlow has been talking about this as a policy change of great import for decades. So obviously having the ear of the president uh, in his role at the NEC is very important. Uh, Mike Pence, as a congressman, was a leader of legislation on this issue as well. So as vice president, I would hope that he would continue to champion this cause, recognizing the importance that it has now more than ever. Uh, and I think that you've seen administration officials talk carefully about this being a, a being an interesting idea. Secretary Mnuchin himself has uh, has said that he wants to see whether or not Congress has an appetite for this, which I think is certainly appropriate to have that kind of deference. We are not used to that after the last eight years of an executive not necessarily giving any deference to the lawmaking authority of the land. But uh, when it comes to making changes that protect taxpayers from a tax code that unfairly treats their assets, I think it's important that Treasury look seriously and act quickly when they can. Uh, So it's my hope that with those leaders in the administration uh, being such a long champion of this issue that they would continue to do so and that we see a real impact soon. Maddie Doppler is a board member at the new Center for a Free Economy and a senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.